Well, uh, good morning. It's really great to be back with you all today. Um, as Brian said, my name is Joe, if we haven't met. Um, even if we have met, my name is still Joe. <laughs> the dad jokes are strong with this one. Uh, this morning, I want to call our attention to um, just a short passage, but I'm going to reference some of the things that come before this passage. But uh, this is just a passage that's kind of stuck with me for many years. I kind of will continually go back to and try and imagine being there and imagine what Matthew is telling us here. And so that's where we're going to camp out this morning. So this is right after Jesus' most famous teaching called the Sermon on the Mount. And as soon as he finishes uh, preaching this amazing sermon uh, with many sayings that you are probably familiar with, even if you haven't spent uh, much time in church, as soon as he finishes this, Matthew, who records this history for us, says this, verses 28 and 29 of chapter 7. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Let me say a prayer and ask God to speak this morning. Lord, forgive the preacher his many, many faults, and may your words and yours only be remembered today. Speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, in, in 2020, in the midst of the chaos of 2020, you may have missed a piece of news. It was the passing <clears throat> of a guy named Paul Vasquez. Paul Vasquez is probably more known by his other moniker, the double rainbow guy. I don't know if anyone's seen the double rainbow video. Uh, guy, interestingly, after watching kind of the story of God's rainbow here, but the, the, if you don't know the story of the double rainbow, um, it, in 2010, Vasquez uh, was on a bit of a journey, uh, and he's up in the Yosemite National Forest, and he, he comes out of this cabin he's staying in, and he looks, and kind of spanning the sky over Yosemite, he sees this massive rainbow, and it just stops him in his tracks. He gets out his camera, and he video records this rainbow. And if you've seen the video, all you see, the, the, the whole video is the rainbow. But that's not why it racked up nearly 46 million views very quickly. It wasn't because of the rainbow. It was because of Vasquez's reaction to the rainbow. Um, he begins to weep uncontrollably at one point, just the sheer beauty of it. It totally takes his breath away. He's processing out loud his thoughts and feelings as he's watching it for like 15 minutes. It goes on forever. You're just hearing him say things like, it's a double rainbow across the sky. What does it all mean? And then he'll just start weeping again uncontrollably. And I remember hearing a radio host at the time say, no one has ever loved anything as much as Paul Vasquez loves that rainbow. Um, <clears throat> so this life is like a journey. Peaks, valleys, um, wilderness, seasons of refreshment. And one of the things that we need to make it on this long journey are moments of astonishment, moments that just stop us in our tracks, 
Moments where we have to catch our breath. Moments where we, we can't even believe the sheer majesty and beauty of what we're taking in. Matthew says that when Jesus finished this teaching, he says the crowds were astonished. How did Matthew know they were astonished? Could he read their minds? No. For Matthew to know that they were astonished, it means they must have appeared visibly astonished. It means they must have sounded astonished. What does it all mean? What does it all mean? When's the last time that you were astonished at Jesus? When's the last time you were astonished at Jesus? This is my encouragement to us this morning. Wherever you are in in the journey, on a peak, in a valley, wherever you are in the journey, don't let yourself get too far away from your astonishment at Jesus. So I want to unpack this a little bit this morning. Obviously, we, we don't have time for me to reference all of Jesus' amazing Sermon on the Mount, but I will be pointing back to some of the things he says there. But let's unpack this. What would it look like for us to be astonished by Jesus? What does it mean to be astonished by Jesus? Well, here's first thing we need to talk about. Number one is let his word continue to astonish you. Let his word continue to astonish you. The world had never encountered teaching like the teaching of Jesus, and it hasn't since. This, just this sermon alone, Matthew 5 to 7, is filled with sayings that have pierced hearts, transformed lives and minds, literally altered the course of history. Blessed are the meek. You are the salt of the earth. Love your enemies. Do not judge. Who of you by worrying can add a single day to your life? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And on and on we could just quote from just one sermon. But Jesus tells us all of Scripture actually points to him. So the words that we have in the Bible, they are the words that God chose to give us. And the focal point is Christ. And it's astonishing. It's astonishing. You're an educated church, probably a bunch of readers in here. Do you read his word? Do you read his word? Do you let it astonish you? Do you let it shape you? See, we're shaped by words. Humans are shaped by words. It's just part of how God made us. Words spoken to us, words spoken about us, words spoken over us. We're shaped by words. There's an old story of a young boy named Tom. Tom uh, was partially deaf in one ear, um, and so he struggled with kind of some subjects, but he was very bright, okay? And he comes home from school one day, seven or eight years old, and little Tom hands a letter to his mom, and he says, this is from my teacher, and she said that only you are to read it. And his mom opens up the letter, and through tears, she says, Tom, it says, the letter says, your son is a genius. He is a true genius. He needs more opportunities than this school has to offer. She said, Tom, I'm going to take you out of that school. I'm going to homeschool you. I'm going to give you all the opportunities that I can. And she did. He grows up and goes to university and studies and becomes becomes a great scientist and inventor. And every day, 
These words stuck with him. Your son is a true genius. These words governing his life. Your son is a true genius. One day later, later in life, after his mom had passed away, he's digging around in the closet and looking through some old things, and he finds this old letter from his teacher. And he opens it up, and he realizes it did not say what his mother had read to him. He opened it up and realized that it said, your son is mentally deficient. He is expelled. See, his mom had a choice in that moment. With her words, she could crush or she could bless and build up. And so that night he wrote in his diary, Thomas A. Edison, a mentally deficient child whose mother turned him into the genius of the century. The power of just a word, the power of words, some of, no, the most impactful, significant, and powerful words that have ever been spoken have been spoken over you and about you. They are in his word. What does God say about you? First John 3 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Psalm 56.8 says, you keep track of all of my sorrows. You have collected all of my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. Isaiah 54.10 says, though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will never be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed. Colossians 2, 13 to 15 says, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all your sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned it, condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. His word is astonishing. Don't let yourself get too far away from astonishment at his word. Number two, let his kingdom continue to astonish you. Let his kingdom continue to astonish you. Part of what would have perplexed the people of that day as Jesus preached this amazing sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, part of what would have really kind of stunned people, shocked them, is the way that Jesus talked about the kingdom of God. And this is elsewhere as well. But think about how he began this sermon. How did he begin it? By saying... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. People would have gone, wait, wait, what? No, 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 King, the kingdom is up. The kingdom's up. And so to get there, you, you go up. It's, it's more prominence. It's more wealth. It's more power. It's more and better morality. It's up, up, up. The kingdom's up. And Jesus comes going, what if it's down? Actually, it's down. This all throughout Jesus' teaching. To be first, what do you got to be? You got to be last. To find life, what do you got to do? You got to give it up. You got to lose it. Wash others' feet. Bless people who are cursing you. Love your enemy. 
See, the kingdom of this world, it's about climbing high. It's about being served. Jesus comes saying the kingdom of heaven is actually about getting low, where the greatest among you, they are actually servants. It's upside down, so it shocks us, but it also compels us, doesn't it? Why is it that when we, when we hear of stories or we see them in movies, we take in stories of people giving up everything for the sake of blessing and loving others, why is it that when we hear those stories, yes, at first we're, we're shocked, we're taken aback, but then part of us goes, I think that's the way, because it's the way. The way is down. Think about this, the epicenter of world history, the dividing line of history, the answer to humanity's deepest problems, the very symbol of our faith throughout all the ages. What is it? It is a Roman torture device. It's a cross where Jesus asphyxiated and died. The way is down. And the early church went on to follow this path downward, serving and loving others, even at the expense to themselves. See, when the way of the kingdom, when it astonishes you, it takes hold of you, and it brings you on that path. Henry Nouwen, you may be familiar with Henry Nouwen, but he was a he was a notable uh, speaker, sought-after speaker and writer, professor at both Harvard and Yale, gets a call one day about a job. Uh, come and be the pastor at Daybreak. Daybreak was a facility for severely disabled people, mentally, physically. Uh, the job would entail um, him living there with them as their pastor. He would be leaving quite literally the best and the brightest for the most often neglected and misunderstood. It would mean feeding people. It would mean taking them to the bathroom. It would mean um, changing their sheets at night. And Nowen said, when I got that call, he said, it was the first time in my life I ever felt called to do anything. And so he took it. He spent the last 10 years of his life getting down moving down. Something in us, we hear those stories and we're shocked at first and go, who would? And then we go, but I think that sounds right. Because it is. The way up is down. Trouble is every day we're pulled in the other direction, aren't we? Our world, especially in the West, is all about up, 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 more accomplishment, more achievement. Even in the church, bigger, better, more, right? Up, up, up. What if the kingdom isn't up? I'm not saying don't pursue excellence. I'm not saying don't be good stewards. I'm not saying you're quitting your job tomorrow. Um, I'm saying to you and I'm saying to myself, don't ever get too far away from your astonishment at the way of the kingdom. Because when it astonishes you, it will pull you to places of giving up yourself for the sake of others. Number three, let the beauty of his gospel continue to astonish you. Let the beauty of his gospel continue to astonish you. Again, I want you to put yourself there. I mean, if you read through the Sermon on the Mount, honestly, right, really hear what Jesus is saying, put yourself there. I mean, (laughs) I'm just imagining people going, wow, um, any of y'all 
think you can do that stuff uh, that he just said? Because if, if lust in my heart is like adultery, if resentment and bitterness in my heart is like murder, we're toast, right? You know, who, who can forgive the way that he just described? Who can pray the way he just described? Who can love and be generous the way he just described? Who can follow that narrow path? And I almost wonder, was there somebody there who went, hang on a second, everybody, like, maybe that's the point. Remember, he said, blessed are the spiritually poor. Maybe the point is that we all need to recognize how spiritually poor we are, and then we need him to come and do for us what we can't do for ourselves, that we need his grace. And maybe, just maybe, if we see that he was willing to give up everything and do all this perfect for us, maybe then we'll actually want to try to do some of this stuff. And that's how the gospel works. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's, it's still, I'm about to say something. Some of you will not like what I'm about to say because it is, the gospel is penetrating and it is offensive. But fortunately, I didn't say it. I'm quoting somebody else. And his name is Steve Brown and he was one of my professors in seminary. But he said one time, and it stuck with me, he said, The only people who ever truly change are the ones who know that even if they didn't, God would still love them just as much. Think about that for a second. It's paradoxical. You've got to see the beauty of the gospel that says, you bring literally nothing to God's table, and he is so delighted to have you there which then makes you want to contribute. <laughs> it's, it's this backwards thing that's beautiful and that changes us. You know, what's truly astonishing is not that Jesus loves people who know they need him. It's that Jesus continues to love people like us who have just enough of our stuff together to start to believe that maybe we're entitled to some of this. People like us who shake our fists at him and go, what are you doing with my life? Don't take away my stuff anymore, right? And how does God respond to us? I'm still here. You're still my beloved. And that should astonish us. It's in that astonishment, in that astonishment that our hearts begin to change. If we don't get to that astonishment, we won't change. He loves first. There's an old Broadway musical called The, uh, the Man of La Mancha. It's based on uh, an unreadable book called Don Quixote. Um, <clears throat> I've tried four times, and I'm a reader. Um, imposterous. Uh, but uh, so the play is a little bit different story. But in the play, in The Man of La Mancha, Don Quixote, he meets this woman named Aldonza. Aldonza is a prostitute. Um, she's the town prostitute. She is, her life, her story is covered in grime. She is physically covered in grime, living on the streets effectively. And Don Quixote meets her and he doesn't ask her her name. He just, well, it's a musical. He just starts singing. And, and it's a song. I can't hear this song without crying. It, it is, he, he calls her Dulcinea. That's the name of the song. Dulcinea, it means sweetness. He just begins singing over her. You are Dulcinea, Dulcinea. 
I see heaven when I see you, Dulcinea. And she's fighting with him the whole time. She's going, we don't know each other. You don't know, that's not my name. My name's Aldonza. She finally even gets to the point where she says, I'm only Aldonza the whore. And he goes, no, you are Dulcinea. I've dreamed of you. I know you. You are Dulcinea. The miracle that takes place in the story is that by the end of the play, she has become Dulcinea. She no longer will let anyone call her Aldonza, and her very character, her very nature has changed. Don't miss this, because of the name. Her newness is because of the new name. And that's like the gospel. God sees us, a bunch of Aldonzas, and he sees his beloved. And he calls us his sweetness. And he loves us before we could ever be worthy of it. And we never could. And that is what changes us. Now, it's going to take the whole play. But it's happening. The moment that ceases to astonish you, the moment that ceases to astonish you is the moment that you begin just trusting in yourself. And it's not going to work. And it's not going to be the beauty of the gospel. Um, What's the name of your church? New City. One of Jesus' most famous lines in Sermon on the Mount. What is it? You're a city on a hill, right? Let me tell you something. You're not going to be a city on the hill if it's all about you and what you've done and how awesome you are and how cool you are and how big and bad your accomplishments are. You know, that won't stand out in our world. Not even close. You know, it will shine, you know, it will stand out, you know, it will put you up on a hill if you are a bunch of wrecks who know you have nothing but him. And you have him. And he's your beloved and you are his. Don't get too far away from your astonishment at his word. Let his kingdom continue to astonish you and let the beauty of his gospel continue to astonish you. Let me pray for us. Father, you love us and we are your children and we have done nothing to earn it or deserve it is purely because of how good and how wonderful you are that we are precious to you. I pray that everybody in this room would feel and know how precious they are to you and how much you delight in them as your children, not because, not because of us, but because of him, because of the one who came and the one who perfectly lived out this new design of humanity that is portrayed in the Sermon on the Mount, and the one who lived it for us and took our penalty on the cross for not living so so that now, by gratitude and the power of his spirit, we might just begin to live into our new name. I pray that we would do that, and I pray that for this church. I pray your blessing over this church and their journey, peaks and valleys. May they continue to live lives astonished. Pray in your name. Amen.